Why do we invite people to Cross Point's table? Why do we offer up spiritual food? The biblical ideal is that the banquet will continue during the week, that we'll continue to live life together as a family. Here's why we exist as a church. Our mission is discipleship. That's why we're here. The mission is discipleship. In other words, helping people move all the way around the table. There are several seats at it. Today I'm going to talk about this first chair. This chair is someone who doesn't feel like they belong at the table. They may not know they're welcome. But they matter just as much as anyone else. The chair here is for the person who is unbelieving. What the Bible in very blunt, clear language calls people who are spiritually dead. Now that sounds morbid, doesn't it? But the Bible says that everyone has sinned and come short of God's glory. And what sin brings into the world is death. The wages of sin is death. So it's not a religious category made up. In fact, it's as I'm going to show you in the Gospel of John in just a minute. Spiritual death is exactly what Jesus called it. So the person who's seated in this chair is spiritually insensitive. They're spiritually unconscious. There is a God who loves them, who made them to enjoy him forever. Who would welcome them into his family and give them a life that they cannot begin to imagine, but they're unaware of it. They're spiritually dead to it. The single greatest fact about dead people is they don't know they're dead. They're unconscious of it. Spiritually speaking, people who are far away from God are not only unconscious, they're also, if we're going to honor what the Bible says, they're also rebellious. They're finding their own way. They're finding their own God. They're finding their own source of comfort and pleasure and direction. They're making up their own road to God in the sincere belief that all roads probably lead to him anyway. And then someone is to use Jesus' words, born again. And what do we call people who have just been born? They're babies. They're infants. And that's why this chair is so sturdy and strapped in and has these, all this cushion and all this, these armored, uh, this armored upholstery around it to keep the baby safe. A spiritual infant, just like a physical infant, needs protection, needs feeding. Then babies, if they're, if they're cared for, eventually turn into small children. And young children become young adults. And eventually, where everyone in this room should be headed, if our mission really is discipleship, eventually, people who were once not at the table, who were born into God's family, move through infancy and childhood and young adulthood, and they eventually become parents. And they look back across the table, not with pride of having grown this way, but with love and care for everyone else here, including those who are not at the table yet. That's what we call discipleship. Jesus wants everyone who is following him, everyone who is his apprentice to be moving around the table. You move out of this chair when you find him and believe him for the first time in your life. If you've come to this service asking questions, not entirely sure of your spiritual relationship with God, it's likely that you're seated in this first chair, and today I want to talk to you. 
Because the message we have is the gospel. And if you think that's a musical genre, it is, but it's much more than that. Gospel literally means good news. The mission of our church, the reason Cross Point exists, is to help people move to full maturity in Christ. To move from spiritual death all the way around the table so they're spiritual parents who are helping bring other children into the family. And what does that at every stage is the good news of Jesus Christ. And I tried to show you last week, and this is the most challenging spot for our 50-year-old church. Jesus' method for doing all this was not large venues. Jesus preached to thousands, but he grew people one at a time in small groups. That was his method, and one of the things I tried to share with you last week is that his message is just as sacred as his method. The American church has largely loved the gospel, but felt free to make up its own method. In helping people move around the table, many of us, including pastors, primarily pastors, have felt that we can improve on the way Jesus did things, and we can't. So would you read that aloud with me? I hate to be pedantic and and treat you like little children, but this has to get into our cultural DNA. We're a 50-year-old church, and churches are much like people. Once you get to be about 50, you kind of like things the way they are. I'm 44, and I already like a lot of things just the way they are. Change comes increasingly hard to me, but if we're going to move along with Jesus in discipleship, if we are truly going to be his apprentices, These simple biblical truths are the boundaries for our walk with him. So would you read that with me? The mission is discipleship. The message is the gospel. And the method is a small group. I wouldn't embarrass her her for the world, but a sweet lady, a godly woman in our church wrote me a very kind email saying, I just want you to know the small group thing doesn't work for everybody all the time. And she went on to relate very difficult circumstances in her life and along the way mentioned, I think without knowing it, about three different groups that she was a part of. When I say small group, I don't want you to hear anything very specific of when and where it meets. It has to be in a living room or it has to be at this certain spot and it has to have an appointed teacher. I'm talking about a small group of people who are friends who have an intentional leader who is helping everyone in the group, including himself or herself, move around the table. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking specifically about any kind of curriculum. I'm not talking about a clever program. I may or may not be talking about Sunday school or groups off campus or groups meeting in my living room. I am talking about every single one of you having a few people that are seated along the table with you, who know you, who love you, who are there for you, who are conscious of which chair they're in, know which chair you're in, and are helping you move around the table. Because the real tragedy of God's family is when someone gets stuck and refuses to move or isn't loved enough, isn't cared for enough by the spiritual family, perhaps because they are not known and are consciously challenged in Christ to move around the table. So the mission is discipleship, the message is the gospel, and our method will be the small group. Let me tell you about the rest of this sermon so I don't surprise you. Today I'm going to talk to you about the first chair. 
And at the end of that explanation from John chapter 3, I'm going to give everybody here who thinks they may be in it, if you're not entirely sure you're in God's family, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray and turn to Jesus and ask him to be your savior. When that's done, I'm not. When we're done praying, I'm then going to talk to you a little bit more as a church family about what that looks like for us. Because the single greatest challenge for our church are the people who sit in this chair. Would you pray with me right now? Father, as we seek your will and your way, I pray that you would give us your heart for people in the first chair. Break down skepticism and tradition and fear. Break down resistance, Lord, to the changes that you want to make in our lives, in my life, in our ministry, in my preaching, in our leadership, in the ministries we have, in the things we enjoy, so that we, Lord, would have your heart for people who are far from you this morning, who are welcome at our table, Lord, but don't want to be here, are not seeking you, do not love you as Savior. God, if there's anyone like that here this morning, I pray that specifically beginning at this moment, Lord, if you haven't already, you would speak to them. And that at the conclusion, Lord, of this message, they would trust you as Savior, have their sins forgiven, and come into your family. In Jesus' name, amen. The biggest lie about this chair is that you can work your way out of it. That's what religion tells you. If you go to Barnes & Noble later this afternoon, you will find a large religion and spirituality section. And you will find endless ways that invite people to recognize their spiritual deadness, their spiritual loneliness, their separation from God, their lack of growth, their lack of understanding, and give them sometimes many hundreds of pages worth of advice on how to work their way out of it. Jesus knew nothing about that. Here's what Jesus told one of the most religious men of his day. He said in John chapter 3, verse 3, he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's big. Do you remember exactly what you did, the great effort you made to be born? It wasn't up to you, was it? At a certain point, your mom and dad, without your consultation decided to try to have children. And about nine months later, again, without your consultation, a wonderful process of gestation was completed and you were born alive into this world. Every time Jesus speaks of people in the first chair that are spiritually dead, he always uses big opposite categories. He, he talks about things like this. He talks about light and darkness. He talks about life and death. He talks about people who are facing God's judgment or, on the contrary, are in God's family. John's gospel that we're reading today was an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. And Jesus' very first personal conversation with someone who was seeking God confronted a man, a man named Nicodemus with those categorical instructions. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, if you know the rest of the story, did Nicodemus have any idea what Jesus was talking about? Well, 
basically sad Garner translation, but I'm an old guy. Can a man re-enter his mother's womb and, and be born again? What on earth are you talking about? The phrase born again has become nearly offensive in our culture. It's an insult, really. I've been told that you're one of those born again guys. Those are Jesus categories. Those are, that's Jesus language because he wants you to understand if anyone will be in God's family, it will represent not a working out of, but a being born into process. It is God giving life. It is God deciding. It is God moving. And to see this, I want you to read with me John chapter 1, verse 9 to 13. This is the introduction to John's gospel. This is John as an old man reflecting back on all he saw and knew about Jesus. And in the first chapter, for 18 verses, he gives a long introduction to the life of Jesus he's about to tell you about. And he starts out with a cosmic view. He steps out of his current time and space and with his now mature understanding, his parent-like understanding of who Jesus was, he tells you who Jesus is and what he was doing. And it all points to what that he told Nicodemus was true, that we must be born again. John 1, verse 9, John wrote, speaking of Jesus, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So see, the real question is not what can we do to move out of this chair, but what has Jesus already done? And John tells you the first thing that Jesus did to bring you into God's family is this. He came to us knowing that we would reject him. John 1, 9 to 13 reads like beautiful poetry, but it represents one of the most horrendous rejections that ever could be described. Look at it again, verse 9. Speaking of Jesus, John tells us the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That's a reference to Jesus' birth. In John 1.14, just a few verses later, he's going to say the word became flesh. Jesus, who was God's son, came from heaven and came into the world. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. I was mulling that over again this morning. There is no possible way you and I can comprehend rejection on that level. Because we're just people. We are not creators. Can you imagine making everything and having the very work of your hands turn to you and say, I don't know you. Parents get a taste of that sometimes when their children disown them without cause. And they have to think on the fact that if it wasn't for the parent's decision, that child would not exist in the world at all. And now he wants nothing to do with mom. He wants nothing to do with dad. It's that, but bigger. Jesus truly was the light of the world coming into the world, giving light to everyone, coming into the world he made. But John says the world he made did not know him. 
Then he gets even more explicit. He gets even more personal. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. I've thought for years that is probably the greatest understatement ever written. Because you know the Jesus story. His life was sought for what people could get out of it for the most part. People sought to use Jesus, including his own disciples sometimes, for how he could make their lives better. When it got down really to brass tacks and he presented himself unequivocally as the only Savior of the world, the one who had come from God to shine light into their darkness, his own people and everyone else, Jews and Gentiles, rejected him. They rejected him so forcefully that they took a man who was unable to be accused of any wrongdoing, even by people who hated him, by hauling him outside of a city where he should have been crowned and praised and nailing him to a cross instead. Rejection on that scope cannot truly be fathomed by our minds. The cross has very nearly become a piece of jewelry in in 2,000 years later. It was an instrument of brutal execution in Jesus' day and to Jesus himself. And Jesus knew all this. And he came anyway. Why? Because what he told Nicodemus was true. People must be born again. If you remember the moment you met Jesus and trusted him and the light spiritually came on for you, you remember that? You would do well to remember the day you were in darkness. See, people who were no longer in the first year very often tend to forget all about it. And spiritual pride creeps in where there should only be gratitude. And all that reveals is that people who forget about the first year are still in spiritual infancy. They are truly so spiritually immature, they don't actually realize all that Jesus did for them. It's a funny thing. But sometimes those of us who have been following the Jesus uh, Jesus longest are the first to find our hearts cold to a simple reminder of the good news of Jesus. I've felt it. I've been in a church service and I've realized sometimes when the pastor's sole intent is to present a message that will help people be born again, move out of the first chair and be born into God's family, I've felt to my embarrassment, my own spirit turn off and I think something like this. I've already heard this. I know this. What should I be doing? I should be rejoicing that this was all done for me. I should be praying fervently that people who are still seated in the first chair, who sat where I once did, are now hearing, perhaps for the very first time, the good news of a Savior who loved them like that so that they can be born into his family. Jesus endured all this. He came knowing that we would reject him. Secondly, John tells us here in this passage that Jesus actually literally became one of us so that God could be our Father. The very next verse in this passage, John 1.14, is a Christmas verse. It talks about the birth of Jesus. John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now remember, that's a commercial fisherman talking. That's not a theologian. 
John is being moved by God himself to write down God's words so that you can understand the magnitude of how much Jesus loved John and how much Jesus loved you. And the way he writes it is like this. The word, the eternal word that was always with God, he became flesh. He became a human being and he lived, literally in Greek, he set up his tent, he tabernacled among us. Do you understand the magnitude of that? In eternity past, when Jesus simply existed as what he's always been, God, for an unfathomable eternal amount of time, Jesus was not a human being. And in a moment in history, he was. And John says it simply, the word became flesh. And he dwelt among us, who us? The ones who saw his light coming into the world and did not know him. The ones who were the work of his hands, the crown of his creation, who disowned him and rejected him. The ones, the entire nation, religious and civic, Jew and Gentile authority structure with the full support of people who took him to a cross. That word of God, who was always with God, who was God, he says in the first verse of his story, he became flesh and he dwelt among us. And the fisherman says, we beheld, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And this is the first time that God is mentioned as father in John's gospel. See, that's the point. If I've lost you with a little bit, let me, make, let me make it as clear as I can. Jesus became one of us. He became just like you. He became a human being so that you would know God as your father and would not have to face him as your judge. That's how great his love is. God is mentioned for the first time as a father when it's mentioned that Jesus became a man because that was the point. To build a bridge between me, seated proudly, insensitively, insensibly in the first chair, between me and God so that he could become my father. It's well to know that God is king and that God is creator, but it is infinitely better to know that God is your father. And if you have that pleasure and comfort, know this. People who are seated in this first chair have nothing except a faint hope that that someday will be true. And when you ask them, what do you think happens after you die? What? An honest response always is, I'm not sure. I don't know, but I'm working on it. I'm doing the best that I can. A friend of mine told me years ago, before he trusted Christ, I'm trying to do the right thing for the right reasons. And there lies the difference between Jesus and the religion of the world. See, as I've already told you, religion gives you advice. That's what religion gives. It gives advice. It tells you to earn it. It tells you to get yourself up, get your dead spiritual self up out of this chair and work hard at it. 
and claw your way in or humble your way in or give your way in or love your way in or sacrifice your way in. But the pressure is always on you. And Jesus knows nothing about that. That's why John says in verse 13, the people who were born into God's family were not of blood nor the will of flesh nor the will of man, but of God. The reason people are born into God's family is because God wants them to be and he has done all this in his son. Religion only offers advice. Jesus, on the other hand, announces good news. Now, let me ask you, what would you rather have, advice or good news? Let's make it simple. You've got a million-dollar debt. Would you rather a wealthy man tell you eight financial strategies that he has followed to retire debt and build wealth and give you that good advice? Or would you rather him write a check and announce that your debt has been paid? What would you rather have, advice or good news? You'd rather have good news. That's the point. Jesus came to announce good news. If you've come to this church for weeks or years thinking that this is helping you get into heaven, you've completely misunderstood us. You've misunderstood Jesus. He didn't, came to give, he didn't come to give advice. He came to announce good news. He announced that good news on the cross when he said, it is finished. And what he meant was, your debt is paid. How do you access that? How do you stand in that kind of favor? John tells you in John 1 verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John is saying... Every moment of Jesus' experience coming into the world was one of humiliation and rejection. The world he made did not recognize him. The people he came for did not receive him. But now he offers up the greatest invitation ever given to all who did receive him. To those who believe in his name. And in John's language, that means to those who fully put their trust in him who trust his character, who trust his purpose, who trust his goodness, to trust what he has promised to do. To them, he gave the right to, what's it say? To become children of God. You see the transition there? To them, he gave the right to become children of God. Everyone on earth was made by God and is loved by God, but not everyone is in God's family yet. For that, they simply must believe Jesus. And that's a hard, humbling thing to do because we are born trusting ourselves. Even now. The struggle for my heart and discipleship is me convincing myself again that Jesus knows better than I do. He always does. And no one ever comes into God's family without making that confession first. Jesus, you're right. I've sinned and separated myself from you. I've sinned and it's killed me spiritually. But you came to die for me. You came to forgive my sins. I trust you. I believe you. See, there's a subtle difference there for a lot of Americans. A lot of Americans believe in Jesus, but they don't really believe Jesus. And there's a huge difference. Bill O'Reilly can write a book about Jesus and have it become an instant bestseller because he is a historically fascinating figure. 
That's not the question. The question is, do you trust him to give you eternal life? Do you trust him to welcome you from death into God's family? Do you trust him to make you born again so that you leap out of this chair? When does that happen? At the moment you trust him. That's the experience of every believer you'll ever meet. If you talk to them, they will tell you, I do, of a burden lifted of a cleansed conscience, of sudden awareness of things that I had heard all my life but were never real to me until the moment I painfully, with great struggle, even though I was a kid, moved my trust from myself to Jesus. At that moment, the light came on. And it was just as vivid as darkness turning into light. It was just as different as death turning into life. It felt just as different of facing God's judgment, which I knew and being welcomed as a loved child into God's family. And what I'd like to do right now is to give you that opportunity. All of you have your connection card. You have a bulletin. Would you look in it, please, and find the connection card? I'd like to invite everyone here to make a choice. If you'll turn that card over, you'll see three blanks at the top. I am putting my faith in Jesus for salvation. That's the first and most crucial thing you will ever do in life. That alone will give you eternal life. Not signing this card. Don't misunderstand me. Personally moving your trust from yourself to Jesus, that's when he becomes Savior. Secondly, You've heard this, this interests you, this gets to your heart a little bit, but you're not yet convinced and you want to know what it means to follow Christ. I'd love to engage that conversation with you. I'd love to hear your questions. I'd love to hear your objections. I'd love to hear your stories. If you found church to be a drag and Christians to be phonies. If some fake kids in God's family are holding you back from being part of it. I'd like to help you understand why the worst thing you could do is let a hypocrite keep you out of heaven. Thirdly, if you're already in the family, I'd like to know how you will fill that blank. I am praying for who to be saved. If our mission is discipleship and our message is the gospel, every single person in this church that understands the truth of what I've just shared with you should be concerned about a few people you know and love who are seated in the first chair. If we're not, we're nothing but infants. At best, we're little children because people who are more mature in Christ are looking back at others and saying, who else can we bring to the table? But first, could I, eyes wide open, all the lights on, If you're not entirely sure of your relationship with Jesus, could I ask you to turn to him and be saved this morning? I'm echoing the invitation that the Gospel of John gave. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's the invitation. Not to join the church, not God help you be more like me. No, to trust Jesus. To trust Jesus and be saved. Could I give all of us a moment of prayerful reflection so that you'll decide what you're going to do with this?
Would you bow your head for a moment, please? Lord, move in our hearts. There are people here who need you. We all do. I pray, God, for those who are deciding between trusting themselves and trusting you. Would you reach down, give them grace, give them faith, and help them trust you as Savior right now. I pray, God, that they would move their trust from themselves, their best effort, the good advice they've been trying to follow, and that they would just come to you right now and say, Jesus, save me, forgive me. Bring me into your family. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a moment and find a pen and let us know what God has laid on your hearts in any of those three categories. In a moment longer and a few more minutes when we receive the offering, would love to know what God is doing in our church family. I'll give you a minute. Now, what does all this mean for Crosspoint? Well, at the end of John's gospel, John ga- Jesus gathered his disciples. And he said to those in his small group that he had spent three years with to train. He gave three years of his life to helping 12 men move around the table. One of them was an imposter, but he had 11. And he would later personally call Paul, and he told those first 11 these words. Would you read that with me? John 20, verse 21, Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Some of you didn't know what I was up to. Now that you do, could you read that with me? As the Father has sent me, What's that mean? That means three things for our church. We need to go to people sitting in the first chair. We can't be passive. We're sent people. We are not seated disciples. We are sent disciples. It is not enough for us to rejoice to be in God's family. Forget about this chair. Make sure the baby's taken care of and make sure it's just us. This right here, this is a lot of churches. I know a pastor, a good pastor, who went to the buckle of the Bible belt. And in about six months, his church went from 70 to 140. And the people said, some of them, influential people said, who are these new people? Watch this. This isn't their church. This is our church. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you gasp. No concern for the first chair. Now, what would Jesus say about a church like that? He would at least say they were off mission. He would say they had misunderstood how families work. Because you know the only way families continue and thrive? By having babies. That's it. The moment a family decides babies are messy, they're expensive, you have to do everything for them, we're done having babies, at that moment that family dies. It takes a while. 
It takes a while for all of them to get old and die together, but that's what happens in Christian churches when Christian churches forget the first chair. What would Jesus say to his disciples? The Father sent me, now I'm sending you in just the same way. And what that means for a family that is concerned about having babies is we must endure discomfort and rejection. Having babies is not the easiest thing in the world. I've witnessed two births. They were a mess. They were painful. They were expensive. They were agonizing. But those of you who are parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about when you nestle that child in your arms for the first time. It's all worth it. It's worth it. When you see 10 people getting baptized last Sunday, is it not worth it? I want to see it happen. I want to see the family grow. Not by attracting more people from other churches who should be already seated at the table. I want us to have a heart for the person in the first chair and do what Jesus said and go to them and welcome them into the family. And the result of that is we will see what Jesus saw. We will see many saved. That's what we're after. See, if I say discipleship and you forget about the first chair, all of this is for nothing. If I say discipleship and you hear Christians who already know Jesus becoming even more knowledgeable, I've I've misexplained or you've misunderstood what this is about. The discipleship process is incomplete. It is broken. It does not reflect the heart of Jesus if it does not start with the people in the first chair. Who matters most at this table? No one. Everyone in the family is precious to God, but he wants everyone moving around. And the final stage of discipleship The most mature person, the one who is most like Christ, is a parent. And what is it that parents do? They have children. They help people come into the family. And once they're in the family, they help them grow to maturity. This is my heart for our church. I really don't have any other plan. This is it. It's not hard to understand. It's hard to live. It's hard to care about every chair at the table. See, because at every one of these seasons, until you get toward that end of the table, life is good with Jesus. And you don't see the need and you don't have the heart to move forward. My heartfelt invitation for you who are seated somewhere at this table, who were already out of the first chair, come grow along with us. Move around the table and have a heart for the person in the first chair. Would you pray with me again, please? Lord, Jesus, you want this church, Lord, To see many saved. You want us to go corporately and individually. You want us to go to people who don't know you. 
There are people here, Lord, in this service, I believe for the first time. I know there will be others in the second service as well. Help us, Lord, to all grow in maturity, to look past ourselves, to look down across the table, and to help others come along with us. God, give us a heart for the first chair. Please, shake up, Lord, our contentment with a family gathering that doesn't continually welcome new children into your family. Lord, you died to give people the right to become children of God. I pray that you will do that this morning, that you would have done that already, Lord. Nothing would rejoice our heart more than to see people born into your family today. And this offering, Lord, that we give is part of our spiritual maturity. We give sacrificially from what you provided financially so that the gospel will be preached all across our town. People in church services and small groups and youth and children's ministries and all the different things, Lord, the hundreds and hundreds of hours that are invested through ministry of this church every single week, that it would all help people come into the family and move on to maturity. So bless, Lord, those who give. Bless the one, Lord, who does not know yet to give. Give him a heart, Lord, of maturity to be concerned for others. And take these offerings, Lord, and make them effective to grow disciples to maturity. In Jesus' name, amen. so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you're nearby next Sunday, we have two services. The first is our traditional hem-driven service at 9 a.m., and then we have our contemporary service at 10.30 a.m. with our worship band. Both services feature the same Bible teaching. Visitors are always welcome at Cross Point, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.